So very much connected with what we've just explored in that question, uh, I want to talk about our ethical practice and really give an introduction to our ethical practice, please. Oh, the, 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 the earlier question was about what uh, is skillful speech only about being truthful? What about when being truthful would harm someone? So it was really pointing to, uh, is, this, is being truthful an absolute in terms of our ethical, um, ethical guidance for speech practice? So right in line with that question, I wanted to talk today about ethical practice. And I was motivated in, uh, to do that uh, in multiple ways. One of them is the fact that for a long time, for many years, once a month, we had the renewal of the ethical precepts connected with this Wednesday gathering. We stopped that, what was it, maybe a year ago? Um, for, for different reasons. Uh, and I wanted to... Uh, both bring back consideration of ethical issues directly, but also have some time at the, near the end of the session to, if we so choose, to uh, make the commitment to follow the ethical precepts. Typically it's done uh, once a month, sometimes more frequently uh, in, some, in some communities. But once a month, one brings to mind the ethical precepts. That's what we did here uh, once a month on Wednesday mornings. People would come earlier. So I was partly motivated by that and partly motivated because it's a very uh, essential part of our practice. And I think also, as Adrian's question brought out, there are challenges and complexities and levels of our ethical practice. We may sometimes think to ourselves, I'm an ethical person. I don't steal. I don't kill. Um, at least other human beings. And I don't really lie, as far as I know. Not blatantly. And so, I'm here for meditation. How is being ethical a form of spiritual practice? We may sometimes think that. We, and I think very much as uh, Dharma practice has developed in the West, meditation has been at the center and ethics has been somewhat on the periphery. And I, w I would maintain that here at Spirit Rock, we have, this, we have very deep and powerful ways to explore meditation and our approach to guiding our own ethical lives is very basic and not so developed. I would make that claim. And, there are different. Re there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, which which I could give, but probably will just give minimally. I think there are multiple reasons why our practice has been more focused on our inner lives and less on our lives in the world. There are different reasons for that. Um, so what is? I want to really speak first, more generally about the ethical precepts, then talk briefly individually about the five lay ethical precepts and then have us uh, collectively take the ethical precepts f at least for the next month when the month ends <laughs> you are on your own you can renew the precepts 
if you wish, or you can you can say, okay, I'm taking this for a year. I mean, go ahead. But I'll but traditionally we just do this for a month, and then we'll have some time for questions. So I'll try to divide our session into those four segments uh, here. So first, some general thoughts about the ethical precepts, about what they are. You know, what what is ethics, and even the word that we use in the West uh, can be confusing. Generally, a prevailing model of what we sometimes call ethics or morality in the West has been following, has been to follow certain rules, certain commandments, as in the uh, biblical traditions, certain uh, guidelines, and to take those as uh, external rules that we should follow to be good people. And in the last few centuries, ethics has been understood in the West in a much more uh, secular way. And I actually once uh, taught university classes on ethics and looked at a lot of the work of the last few centuries. And essentially, it, it divides into a few approaches one of which was to look at the intention uh, behind an action to decide whether it was good. The, the other competing approach, which is often called utilitarianism, is to look at the consequences of an action to decide whether it's good or the imagined consequences. And out of that come uh, ways of looking and evaluating actions like cost-benefit analyses, right? It comes out of that framework. You look to something and try to decide Will this have good effects? Will it have bad effects? You add it up and make your decision based on your analysis. So that, that's often how ethics has been um, understood. I think in the Buddhist tradition we have a, in my mind, a fuller uh, account of what ethics means. And even the words ethics or morality may have connotations and we may choose to use other words. I sometimes like to use, the langu- use language like living a life of integrity. For some of us, ethics or morality may have that sense of external rules that we should follow. And that's really not what uh, the ethic, so-called ethical guidelines are in Buddhist tradition. So I want to say some about what they are on, on my understanding. Um, traditionally, there are three interrelated areas of training. One of them is called uh, sila, and that's what we understand uh, generally. We often translate it as ethics. A second is generally called meditation and includes areas like mindfulness. And this is correlated with the Eightfold Path. So it's connected with developing mindfulness, developing concentration, developing the effort to be present moment to moment. In the um, Eightfold Path, the understanding of ethics is explicated in terms of following the ethical guidelines, and there's particularly a focus on right speech or skillful speech, and also right livelihood. And then the third area of training is the area of developing wisdom, developing uh, clarity of view, 
of clarity about what's uh, happening. And that's particularly focused on understanding the roots of suffering, the roots of freedom, the nature of change, and the nature of who we are. Uh, So that would come under the wisdom rubric. In the tradition, those are all understood as interrelated, very closely interrelated. And so even some of the ways that mindfulness is being developed in the contemporary world as a secular form of mindfulness is often um, not connected with the ethical dimension. But traditionally, all of these are interconnected. So when one is developing, when one is receiving meditative training, one's also undergoing ethical practice. And they're very closely interrelated. That becomes important because when we are exploring ethical guidelines, in part, we do so by looking at our own minds, seeing our motivation. Why did I do that? What's my motivation right now? I feel like I kind of want to go against the ethical precept. What's going on right now? So we use mindfulness. We may use other tools. We may call upon our wisdom. So it's not just, as it were, uh, rotely following an external guideline. There's There's a very rich sense of ethics as involving inner exploration, looking at how we act, and then acting appropriately. What that points to is that ethics is very much a training. The eth- let me say ethical practice or sila is very much a training. It's, again, not so much following external guidelines, but it's following certain guidelines and knowing that we may always somewhat fall short of them or that we may come up against them. We may realize, oops, I didn't follow the ethical precept in that instance. You know? Or I got in a really bad mood and I said something nasty and it was harmful and I wasn't following the ethical precepts. So it's really understood as training and you can see even in the expression, in the handout uh, of the five ethical precepts, they're expressed in this translation as in the translation of the first ethical guideline, for the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. So the training aspect is very crucial here. We are, which means that we don't, as it were, blame ourselves when we fall short of an ethical guideline, but we see it as learning and development. And in fact, there are are multiple levels. And I think taking the ethical precepts seriously can be a whole form of, um, can be the center of one's practice. Some people may focus more on meditation. Some may focus on what does it really mean to take a vow not to harm others, not to harm myself, not to harm others. You know, what does that mean, for example, in the contemporary world when my tax dollars fund wars and I, and I take a vow to follow the precepts? Gets tricky, right? Yeah. And even, even in the Buddha's time, the precepts were not simply understood as what we do with our own individual behavior and face-to-face interaction. They were not simply understood as um, what we do, as it were, in terms of our own private behavior or our own behavior with others. But I think there was, uh, even in the early times, a, a social dimension 
Um, the Buddha in one of the texts said, do not kill, do not let others kill. How, how did he, let me see if I have the exact um, translation here. Now he, he used a little different language. I think that was actually Thich Nhat Hanh's language, kind of rephrasing the precepts in the 20th century. But this is the Buddha talking about the so, in what I interpret as a social reading. Let him not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life. That's, it's getting there. Nor cause others to destroy life, and also not approve of others killing. Right? And then similarly, he said in terms of the second precept, let, let him not cause to steal, nor approve of others stealing. So it's not simply attending to oneself. You know, and then, and then um, you know, in the 20th century, in the light of the way that so many of our ethical concerns have been lar- you know, our, about our participation in larger social systems. You know, how do I relate to, if I'm a white southerner in, ni- in the 1950s, how do I relate to racism and segregation, right? If I'm a non-Jewish Christian in Nazi Germany, what, what are my ethical responsibilities? If there's killing in my name by a government, what are my ethical responsibilities? And many uh, Buddhist practitioners have wanted to say, and this is also paralleled by what we find among many writers uh, on ethics in Jewish, Christian, Islamic, um, Hindu traditions, that ethics needs to have this larger context. And, and so uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, says it in this way, do not kill, do not let others kill. He also says, this is the Vietnamese teacher, possess nothing that should belong to others. Prevent others from enriching themselves from the suffering of other beings. And he's saying that this is a way to, to understand the ethical precepts. So I'll come back to that. But it mean, what it means in my mind is that the practice of the ethical precepts can actually be quite deep and quite challenging and quite radical. Radical in the sense of going to the roots, not simply a matter of, oh, I'm an ethical person, check, <laughs> on to meditation, <laughs> right? I, I want to suggest that it's a little, that there, there is potential, if we take some of these, to act for this actually to be quite challenging and quite hard in terms of knowing how to act, if we really take the, the, um, the ethical vows. So I was wondering... Maybe just for a moment, I, I was wanting just to ask you, when you contemplate what are the ethical issues for you, what comes up? You know, that could be personal ethics, it could be, again, relating to the larger society in terms of ethical questions. And I, I want to just hear a few responses. And I want to ask you to, uh, if you can have if you can formulate a question just in a short sentence. In other words, I want to just hear a few sentences rather than four-minute answers, because <laughs> I, I want to be able to hear from a few people. So what, anyone have something? What, what, what is an ethical question? Again, it could be something very personal. It could be really anything where an ethical issue has come up for you. Yeah? So, <clears throat> my husband is a computer programmer. 
Okay. He's my tech guy. Can you just do one sentence? Oh, one sentence. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, how do I, when I want attention from someone, yeah. um, is that, is that, um, how, how does that square with the precept of not taking that which is not freely given? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When I want attention from someone. <laughs> when I want attention from someone, how does that square with the second precept of not taking something that is not freely given? Okay, so you see, there are, there are depths and subtleties everywhere. <laughs> okay, please, uh, Maria. Yeah. Um, one aspect of, um, or one reason to keep the precepts that I've learned through Buddhist study is um, because breaking the precepts creates remorse in the mind. Mm -hmm. And then remorse becomes a hindrance yeah. in practice. Yeah. So, so breaking the precepts causes remorse, it becomes a motivation for practice. Okay. No, Remorse becomes a hindrance to practice. Remorse becomes a hindrance to practice, yeah. Okay. Uh, please, and if you can, just remember that one sentence. Yeah, um, when in certain areas of San Francisco, like the Civic Center, encountering homeless people that are often mentally ill, what's the best ethical response? So encountering homeless people who are mentally ill, what's the most appropriate, the best response, the best as, as an individual and as a society? Yeah. I'm struggling a lot with this as an individual. As an individual, okay. So encountering homeless mentally ill, what's, what's my best ethical response? Yeah. Okay, please. How do you work with transgressions of the precepts now? I remember reading some of the... One sentence. The Theravada text. Yeah. How to work with transgressions in the community by members of the community? Or also just in your individual life. Okay. So how to work with transgression, you know, how to work with transgressions of the precepts. Like if one notices that a friend has transgressed a precept, what's your response? Once one do we just let it go or what? Yeah. Right. Great. That's an important question. Okay. Maybe one or two more. Yeah. Is it okay to trap yellow jacket before the garden party at which there will be guests who are allergic to this thing? <laughs> is it okay to, is it align, in alignment with the precepts to trap yellow jackets before a party at which some people will be allergic to yellow jackets? Okay. Some of the, yeah. The okay. mosquitoes in there. Okay. Okay, maybe last one. Yeah. 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 Is um, is harming others acceptable as a means to an end? You know, especially in situations like war or, or violent conflict. 
Okay. Well, th- these are these are good, and maybe we can keep these uh, going forth. So I'm 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 imagining that I will work with um, looking at our ethical practice for the next few uh, Wednesdays that I'm here. I'm here next week, and then I'm here uh, two weeks later. And that next week is uh, a week that a uh, number that we're having our second annual Earth Care Week. And I'm going to actually look at ethical questions related to how we treat the Earth. So that'll be the focus next week. But I think we can bring forth these questions. I'm imagining can, having a series where we look at this. So um, what I wanted to do now, having given some the general sense that, you know, that ethical practice is involves multiple dimensions, meditation, looking at wisdom, looking at our conduct, inquiring that it's a matter of training rather than simply following, uh, following external observances and checking how we meet them in some way. Um, and that it is a practice that can bring great depth and inquiry to our lives, that it can actually, if we want to actually follow them, they can, they can actually take us very, very uh, deeply. And that it, again, is part of a interrelated practice involving meditation, wisdom, and looking at our, at our actions. So a very brief overview of the precepts, and then we'll, we'll take the, we'll take the uh, uh, precepts together. And I'm going to give these briefly, and I, I think it's very possible that I'll come back and give extended treatment of some of the precepts in future sessions. Yeah. The first, you know, if you remember the precepts, they're on the sheet of paper, which uh, everyone should have. If you don't have it, it's on the chair right behind the uh, massive chairs. Remember the first, all of the precepts, these are the lay precepts. Now, Monks and nuns have over 200 precepts to follow, a lot of which describe very minute aspects of their behavior, such as whether they can carry money, um, how they should deal with their beds, all sorts of things. A lot of uh, of details. For lay people, non-monastics, generally there are five precepts, and most of us know these, whether from the renewal of the ethical precepts or from the way that we've taken the precepts at the beginning of retreats, which we do here regularly. And we try to have the container of following the ethical precepts at our retreats. And so I think we know the five. They are really can be summarized as all versions or all um, expressions of not harming ourselves or others. This is really what the, the essence of the precepts are about. And there, there are guidelines, and as came out in the questions, when we actually go really deeply with each of the precepts, there are a lot of complexities. But they also have a certain um, clarity to them that, that really help us in general. The first precept is not to harm others, particularly physically. But I think we can take it generally to mean not to harm not to harm ourselves or others. The second precept is not to take that which is not given. The third precept is to, I would, I would phrase as to have care around our sexuality. 
The fourth is to have care around speech. Each of these can be unpacked in more detail. The fifth is about care with substances which shift consciousness, sometimes translated as intoxicants or drugs and so forth. You know, we know different translations. So let me say a few words about each of those, each of those five. Um, it's often thought that the first precept about not harming is actually the most important of the five. And as I mentioned, we, we could see each of the other four as uh, unpacking of the first precept. From one of the texts of the Buddha, non-harming is the distinguishing mark of Dhamma. You may also know that non-harming is related to the ancient Indian term ahimsa, which was the term that Gandhi used, or took really, for nonviolence. And that the first pre- a version of the first precept was the central guideline for Gandhi's actually bringing of uh, non-harming uh, in, again, into a uh, whole way of life that involved how we are with our own minds, hearts, bodies, how we are with others, and how we are in the larger society. And so, and obviously people like Dr. King have also brought a version of non-harming into, into the social realm. For the Buddha, this, this was radical and involved not harming any being. Uh, not just human beings. He said, one must not hate any being and cannot kill a living creature even in thought. So this obviously raises questions about um, how we eat, how we live, do we kill animals as part of our means of getting food. Historically, these questions have been open in Buddhist tradition. Buddhists have not been, contrary to popular belief, all vegetarians. In fact, it's, it's typically been, uh, typically uh, Buddhists have been non-vegetarian. I remember when I was in Thailand, of course, and I, I was at monasteries, uh, the villagers would give all sorts of food. And, and it was sometimes hard, and it was lovingly presented, but it, there was meat, there were often, because it was a tropical climate, there were often insects, <laughs> all sorts of things. I remember when I was part of gatherings of uh, socially engaged Buddhists in Thailand, and one of the meetings, there was a, a more radical group of Thai Buddhists who claimed that being vegetarian was the right way to go, and they cooked for us for this for a whole week. And you should see the complaining <laughs> by the Thai Buddhists about, get, about just eating vegetarian food. So this, is not, this has not been uniform. Uh, you know, arguably it would be an interpretation that would be in accordance with these lines of the Buddha, right? But it historically it has not been. So this, for some people, this is a major place of ethical action, right? There are, there are people who say, this is a way to act both in my individual behavior, but also what to do in terms of society, right? To follow the ethical precept about non-harming requires a whole different attitude towards how we are towards animals towards, I should say, non-human animals, because um, we are animals. <laughs> uh, could, could you hold it till, till later? Would that work, Deb? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So there are a lot of passages interpreting 
you know, what this means. But it's taken a, it's taken to be very central. Another passage from the Buddha, abandoning the onslaught on breathing beings, one abstains from this without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So the trembling actually brings in the sense of compassion and, and empathy. That there's this, and this would connect with the meditative training. You know, that I think this is, you know, the, some of you know the word for compassion actually is connected with uh, the original, in the original language, words like quivering in the presence of pain. And there's another word that's karuna, and there's another word anukampa, which literally means shaking or trembling when another being has pain. So this is connected with the, with the, first, with the first precept. And as I mentioned in the earlier quotations, people like Thich Nhat Hanh and others have wanted to bring this out into the social realm. And this has been done sometimes in Buddhist tradition. The, um, you know, the, the great, uh, there was a point at which there was a Buddhist king, uh, uh, Ashoka, who lived a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha and established a society that had no capital punishment and that refused to engage in war, and that actually gave protection to animals. This was um, 2,400 years ago, and it lasted for some time. Right? So you have examples of that. The second precept is, can be, is parallel, and this is the precept not to take that which is not given. And I should say that in the understanding of the precepts, they're expressed negatively, but they're understood, you know, not to harm, not to take that which is not given and so forth. But the understanding in the tradition is that one is developing positive qualities. One is going against negative qualities. In the first precept, it's going against hatred. It might be going against uh, Greed in the second precept, not taking that which is not given. We want to look at these qualities. The first precept is developing love and care. When we develop the first precept, we're furthering. So this is, a, this is a, again, a little different reading of what ethics means. In this context, ethic means to develop love. In the second in terms of the second precept, not to take that which is not given, it means to develop generosity. So one could dedicate one's life to developing love, generosity, and care for living beings and try to have that be in, the, in all the realms of one's life. And that would be following the ethical precepts. That's an important point because the, I, I think what I understand from the original languages is that words like ahimsa or words that express the negative, like not to steal, not to harm, in the original languages had more connotations of the positive, like connotations of love, connotations of generosity. That's what I've been told by, by scholars of that tradition. And so, again, we want to look to see how we, uh, how we uh, what comes up when we want to take something. What comes up when there's greed? Can we look at that? You know? Uh, and that is very much related to the, the second precept, not taking that which is not given. I remember we, we um, <coughs> with Diana Winston uh, some time ago, 
um, we offered a class uh, called Greed Management. <laughs> Very low attendance. <laughs> we had five people. We had two teachers and five people. We, we didn't care. We were just interested in the topic. It didn't matter if there were five. And we, lo we loved it. It was like a five-week class. The final exam was doing silent walking meditation in the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond at El Cerrito <laughs> Plaza. <laughs> It was amazing. Do silent walking meditation and watch your mind wanting. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was fascinating. And then we debriefed at the end of 30 minutes of silent walking meditation. And I, I was surprised. I never knew. I, I discovered that people had invented needs that I didn't know existed. <laughs> you know, they were like, when you, when, I don't know how it is now, but when I walked in, there were like, right as you walk in, there are like, 30 or 40 different types of uh, garbage cans. Okay, so again, uh, I'll, be, I'll be brief with the third through the fifth precept, and maybe we can, we'll go into more detail in future sessions. Very crucial. They are about care with sexuality, with speech, and with um, what I'm calling substances with shift consciousness. And these are highlighted because these are areas where, when we are not careful, harm is often done. When we're not careful with speech, when we're not careful with sexuality. And it's also to, uh, <clears throat> again, not just focus on the negative, but also to focus on what are the qualities that are developed when we're careful in these realms. There is care about others, there is looking at motivation, there is seeing when I'm greedy, they're seeing when I'm reactive, there is coming more out of care, and so forth. So we can see that in all of these areas, there is, there, we can say that when I'm committed to this, it's not just about not doing certain things, but it's also about developing positive qualities. A lot more could be said. I'm also quite interested in how the third through the fifth precept also have plenty of social implications. If we're really dedicated to the third precept about sexuality, I think we would be very concerned about the objectification of sexuality in society. In the way that, you know, in advertising and in images particularly of young women, that there, is, um, there are conditions set up which cause harm. And if we really were committed to the precept, we would want to take action in all those, those, those realms. The same could be said in terms of speech, in terms of um, substances which shift consciousness, all the tendencies that uh, support addiction, that describe, you know, that see uh, drug use as a crime, that criminalize drugs, particularly we know from Michelle Alexander's work, that criminalize um, drug use disproportionately in African American and Latino communities. We know that, right? So if we were concerned about that, we would also not just want to deal with individual behavior, but we'd also want to remedy some of the social problems. Okay? So we can come back to questions we have about that. What I'd like to do is to very briefly take the ethical precepts. That's the, what I just uh, offered was the pep talk for taking the ethical precepts. And uh, what we'll do is we'll first very briefly, and this is traditional, take the three refuges, which are the 
sense of taking the refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which means to say that uh, for me it's very important that I remember my basic intentions. Taking refuge in the Buddha may mean taking refuge in the historical Buddha and being part of that tradition. It may more generally for us mean I take refuge in my potential to be awake, my human potential to be awake. That is, could be one reading of taking refuge in the Buddha. Similarly, the other two have both a more specific and a more general meaning. Taking refuge in the Dharma can mean taking refuge in the teachings about freedom and liberation that come down historically from the Buddha. It can mean, uh, sometimes it means taking refuge in the nature of things, in reality, in the way things are. It can mean taking uh, refuge, having as a value to follow the teachings about freedom and liberation in different forms. And then taking refuge in the community means to uh, recognize that we can't do this by ourselves, that these are our fellow practitioners who sometimes point out our transgressions. <laughs> and we can come back to that. You know? And that uh, we are, as one of my friends says, we are all um, diamonds in the rough who need to be polished by rubbing up against others <laughs> who are our community members. <laughs> you know, so that's very much, the, take that as an image if that works for you. So we take the three refuges, then we'll go right to the precepts. And I think, I think this time I will, um, I'll do the refuges in Pali. We'll do those together. I think enough of us know this. And then I think for the precepts, I'll do them in English. I'll say them. Maybe I'll say them in Pali and then in English, and then I'll have a pause where we sense, what does this mean for me? Have us pause for 30 seconds a minute and just say, you know, after I say, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life, I will just say, okay, just let's sit with that for a while and take it internally, see what it means to you, okay? And if you'd like, you can hold your hands in, in this posture that's traditionally done as we do this. So this we'll do in Pali. We'll do this together. I think enough of us know this. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddham saranam gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutiyampi Buddham saranam gachami Dutiyampi Dhammam saranam gachami Dutiyampi Sangam saranam gachami Tatiyampi Buddham saranam gachami 
Tatiampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Actually, why don't we say these together? Um, and then we'll still take a pause to just let the meaning sink in. Um, why don't I say the Pali? Or why don't you follow along with me as best you can if, uh, and say it together? But, uh, and just to say that the, the V is pronounced as W. I think that's the main thing. Okay. So we'll say these all together, both the Pali and the English. Then there'll be a pause. Then I'll start again for the second. Panati pata veramani sika padam samadhi yami. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. The second precept. Adina dana veramani sika padam samadhi For the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. And the third precept. Kamesu michachara veramani sika padam samadhi For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. And the fourth precept, Musa Vada Veramani Sika Padam Samadhi For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from unwise speech. And the fifth precept. Sura Mareya Maja Pamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness. by taking the five ethical precepts, one way to practice with them 
Some of you may want to work with all five at the same time. One way to practice with them, if you haven't had a focus time, is actually just to take one precept and do it for like the first week and to remember it. You want to generally take all precepts, but you can, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying do the first precept and be a backslider, as the Bap- Southern Baptist used to say with the other four. Uh, but um, just to, one way to do it is to take all five generally, but really to highlight maybe one of them, remember it in the morning, and really give some focus to it. And I, I once had a group where we, did, we took six months to work with the uh, five precepts and really um, tried to remember, you know, really work with them closely. So I think that that's, that's a skillful way is to maybe just, if you want to, you could remember all five in the morning and then work with them. But one way is to maybe to remember all five, but then particularly focused on one that you'll look at carefully. Okay. And then do that for a week, then another one for a week, and so forth. That can, that's a general way of learning in daily life, is to do, have a manageable bite, so to speak, for a given period, and then really work with that and get it internalized, and then you can move on. Okay, so we have some time for any questions, reflections, uh, related to anything I said, anything that's come up from you, and can start with you, Deb. Must use the microphone if we can. But I'll, I'll, why don't you go ahead and I'll repeat yours. Yeah, I was wondering during the Buddha's day yeah. whether they ate meat, if, whether that's known. Whether that's known. Uh, the question is, during the Buddha's time, did they eat meat? Um, I personally don't know that for a fact. Does anyone here know that, Maria? Didn't the Buddha die from eating You're right, you're right. So, really? <laughs> yeah. also in that context... That's right, uh, yeah. The monks were allowed to accept whatever was offered, but no animals should be killed. Yeah, the, the, general, the general guideline that still holds true in contemporary uh, Asia is that um, people accepted whatever was offered to them unless they knew that an animal was specially killed for them. Then they could not accept it. But you're right, uh, Maria reminded me that um, the Buddha actually died from eating uh, essentially what was, uh, um, I, don't know if, not, I don't know if it was poison, but it was meat that was, um, what, uh, spoiled. Spoiled, and that, that was the, his actual cause of death, so he must have regularly been eating meat. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's um, complex already, isn't it? Yeah. Other questions, comments, reflections? We could, we could also ask, you know, answer the different questions that we ask, like, how do we work when we see other people? Your question, how, how do we respond when we see other people uh, not following ethical guidelines? How would any of us uh, respond to that? Anyone? There's a TV show called What We Do Do. Yeah. <laughs> There's a TV show called What Would You Do? Yeah. I uh, struggle with the aspect of unwise speech, especially as engaged in community. When uh, at town council meetings or board of supervisors meetings where where you're responding to a lot of political attacks and it becomes a very, it's very difficult, it's very 
hard to become skillful yeah. at responding without attacking back. That's yeah. like, well, you are this or you're that. Yeah, what do, we, what do we do in terms of speech? And it could be in terms of some other action. When we receive something harsh, unskillful, and so forth, and it's, it's uh, hard not to respond back. This is really where the aspect of training comes in. And this is what really is crucial, I think, and something I found in so many realms. Our minds may even here be going to the most difficult situations or the most extreme situations. A way that we pre prepare for the most difficult situations or extreme situations, and both prepare and build the capacity, because sometimes the extreme situations are happening right now, right? is that we train to develop the, uh, the understanding and the capacity uh, that's needed. So for example, what do I do when I get something difficult coming at me? If I've really looked at my own reactivity carefully and looked at how I respond in less challenging situations and really worked with that and studied that, we're going to be capable of being there with the most difficult situations. So the training, it's why, for example, a lot of uh, nonviolent uh, demonstrators or activists in the civil rights movement and other times went through a lot of training, right? Because they wanted to see what are the reactions which will tend to come out in this more difficult situation. And so all of the training that we do in mindfulness, in developing loving kindness, in developing these capacities for compassion, for empathy, and so forth, have to be developed initially in more protected environments and really strengthened. Because if they're not strengthened, how are we going to be able to respond when things are more difficult? So this is really, this is what I've come to see, especially over the years, is that the um, it's natural for our minds to go to more difficult circumstances, but the response is only partially to speak about difficult circumstances, and it's in large part to say, what's going to make you ready for the difficult circumstances? Because you ha if you haven't practiced and trained, all you can do is follow some formula at that point. It's not going to come from your guts or your insides, right? And so what we're doing is really developing um, what do you do with the person with the cell phone who prevents you from accelerating your car um, and delays you by three seconds? And are you reactive and do you engage in unskillful speech there? What do you do? How do you look at, at uh, everyday life situations? Like, am I taking that which is not given in relation to someone I'm close to? Or, uh, you know, or to look at everyday situations, you know, like going to Bed Bath and Beyond and looking at greed. So I think the, the foundation of the precepts is looking, is doing the work with the small stuff, actually, and the everyday stuff, and really taking that seriously. And then working with more difficult situations, and then being able to work with less difficult ones. Or, or even more difficult ones. You know, so there's some, So that's, I think, in all of this, the training aspect is really crucial. And there are particular ways to, to work with those situations. You know, for example, 
you know, how do I train so I'm not reactive in extreme situations? You can, you can actually train for that. You can do role plays. You can, you know, practice Aikido. You can practice uh, empathy. I, I did, I remember I, I've done workshops in the teaching capacity of how do I deal with difficult people in my teaching role. I remember there was one workshop which was three hours on how to deal with difficult workshop participants. <laughs> Doesn't apply here, of course. <laughs> but and we, we did practice and a lot of you know a lot of it was seeing what is you know what would it be like, you know, what are my tendencies to be reactive? Can for example, can I be empathic even when I have stuff coming at me? What in my training leads me to be defensive? Can I actually um, work with my own reactivity and know it's happening and not go there? Right? That's, that can be developed meditatively. That can be developed in training and will then apply to those situations. So um, I think training is where it's at. So we need more ethical training workshops. Okay. Time for one or two more, if there are any more comments, questions, observations, laments, poems. Uh, Marty, please. In responding to others, yeah. it's so easy to get into judgment. Yeah. So a question that that I like to use or that I'm thinking of right yeah. now is, is this response um, helping to create a feeling of connection in me at least? Yeah. And then that, if it's coming from a place of wanting connection and trying to understand and create connection, then I'm much less likely to be in a right. place of judgment. So be- beautifully said, really. So it really points to, I think, a few aspects. One is to look at the um, intention that's there. What's my intention? You get, the, you get someone attacks you. What's my intention right there? Can I connect with the intention, so to speak, to connect? Or can I, can I access the intention to connect? Or is my intention to defend myself? Or where am I coming from you know, with that? And it also makes me uh, reflect on really the core principle of our practice, which we've looked at. We looked at in um, August. Remember, we had, I, I did a series. We did a series on uh, how we practice in difficult circumstances. And one of the understandings was that right at the center of our practice is a commitment to respond rather than react, even when things are difficult. And how do we develop so that that is there? That's really, how can I, because when we're reacting, we're not free. We're at the, basically at the mercy of some past conditioning. And we're not necessarily coming out of wisdom and care. How do I come out of wisdom and care even in challenging situations? And again, I would say that part of an answer for that is really to develop the foundation really strongly and, and start bringing it out into places where it's not as easy. You know, there are a lot of texts where the Buddha really encouraged people to test themselves, to accept challenges, not just to be totally in easy circumstances, right? Um, So yeah, so uh, really making that commitment to I will try to be responsive 
is another, that can really be linked with how we practice the ethical precepts. Yeah, so maybe, maybe we'll stop with that question, but you can really see how this is, this is a challenging practice that if we, and it can be a very deep practice, that one way of interpreting the first precept of not harming is to say, I will not, I will commit to trying not to react negatively when I receive negativity. Or as Gandhi said, I will not return blow with a blow. I will not return harm with harm. And how do we practice that even on a small scale? We get difficult words come at us. If we're committed to non-harming, we're committed to non-reactivity, even with the small stuff. So you can see how this is this is challenging. You might have come in here thinking, ethics, got that down, check, right, on to the deeper stuff, <laughs> right? But it's actually challenging interpersonally, and I think it's also quite challenging socially. You know, and there are certain periods of time when the world raises profound ethical questions for everyone. And I think we're in one of those times now in multiple ways. And so it's actually a deep and powerful practice. And people who have the capacity to make the connections between ethics and inner work have a very beautiful and powerful role to play in the world. And that's you. That's us. Right? Because you can make those connections with the inner work. Most people in the world do not do that. And it gets a little more external. Or let's say many people do not. And so there's a very important role for people who can really understand uh, how we respond, how we act in the world as having this connection of inner and outer uh, training and development. So go forth. (laughs) Go forth and we'll continue this uh, next week. So may this be of benefit to ourselves. May it be of benefit to those with whom we are. May it be of benefit to others, ultimately all others. Thank you.